Genesis chapter number 10, book of Genesis chapter number 10. We will, Lord willing, get to uh, this passage here in just a few moments, but I've entitled the message, I know it's a little bit of an unusual message, and I don't want it to come across as academic. Um, I, I know that Sunday nights can sometimes be a little bit uh, more uh, difficult coming off of maybe a Sunday afternoon nap or uh, whatever the case may be. Our minds maybe are on a busy week ahead. Um, so I don't want to, in a sense, bore us with um, academia or uh, minutia of academia. Um, and I don't want it to turn into necessarily a, a uh, an academic classroom. But this is a, a fascinating study when we look at God's plan for the nations. And we see in scripture the destiny of the nations, many specific nations that are identified in scripture and we are told in prophecy what God's eventual determination and plan is for these individual nations. Now, there, are, there is history that we can't even touch tonight because each of these nations, each of these people groups, we could go into the history and how they have influenced the world and how they have affected Israel. And there's so much that we could say about each of these individual nations. But I want us to begin tonight in talking about the destiny of the nations. I want us to begin by recognizing in Psalm 9 and verse 17 the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. We see with every nation that God deals with them in how they respond to the gospel, to his son Jesus Christ, to the truth. And we see the promise in Psalm 9 in verse 17 as we just read that the wicked are turned into hell. And all the nations that forget God, that reject him, that suppress his truth, that will not obey the Lord, will not submit to the Savior. And we see nations that have disappeared from the annals of history. They are gone. One of the arguments, one of the arguments that is used against Christianity is why would God allow Israel to conquer Canaan and to, as I don't like to use the word, but some people will, in their criticisms of Christianity, unfounded criticisms, they will say, why would God have Israel commit genocide against the nations of Canaan. I disagree with the use of the word genocide. It is also an unfounded, it is a false criticism of Christianity. If you take the time to read through the book of Leviticus, you will read of the horrific sexual sins and the idolatry of the nations of Canaan. And God said, these are the sins of the land. 
Do not participate in them. If you do, you will meet the same destruction. And we had a discussion the other day, a conversation the other day. I can't remember exactly where it was at and who I was talking to. I can't, can't remember. I think it was with one of my children. But somehow this topic came up. And we don't realize, if we look at the decay of our culture and some of the wicked perversions that are on display now on primetime television, the blasphemous, sinful activity that is now primetime TV. And we wonder, why would God not bring down fire and brimstone right then and there? Well, again, we have to remember, if not for the grace of God, so go I. But we also have to think of the land of Canaan and the wicked perversions and the sexual sins And it was actually an act of God's mercy that those nations suffered the judgment of God and in some cases wiped off the face of the earth with a remnant, in some cases, of those who believed. Rahab was of the citizens of the land of Canaan, but she was spared because she put her faith and her trust in God. The Gibeonites... Though they were deceitful in their attempt to be spared from Israel's advance into Canaan. In that dispensation, God gave Israel the right to go into Canaan and to destroy those nations. And it was an act of mercy because of the wickedness and because of the perversions that were so despicable and so diabolic that if they were not judged, I would have to say that we probably wouldn't even exist today. We wouldn't even be here because they would have destroyed, in a sense, civilization because it was so wicked. And we look at our culture right now and the wickedness that is on primetime TV, in the movies, in the entertainment industry, the types of individuals and their sinful Actions that are put on display and celebrated and then the intolerance for biblical Christianity and those who call that sin out and call it what it is. The intolerance of biblical Christianity. We're we're not too far removed from some of the sins of the land of Canaan. Some of the wickedness. So there is a destiny for the nations. And we'll see some of this as we go through this tonight. We just looked at Psalm 9 and verse 17, but let's look at this word nations for just a moment. Acts 17 in verse 26 makes reference to the nations of the world. Acts 17 in verse 26, And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. I can't give the lecture or the sermon that Ken Ham can give. I have not uh, read in its entirety uh, Ken Ham's book, along with Charles Ware, Dr. Ware, uh, One Blood, One Race. Ken Ham, we were at the creation, actually was at the Ark Encounter, and Ken Ham was there giving the lecture on one blood, one race. It was excellent. There's only one race. It's the human race. We're all one blood. But there are nations. There are individual nations. We understand that. Now, 
I know that there are some people who don't understand that the United States of America is a sovereign nation and has borders that ought to be protected. Okay, I realize that some people uh, don't, don't realize that, even in places of power and politics, sad to say. But the, the, the word nation is, is simply from the word from which we get ethnic. In the original language, ethnos. It can be defined people, nationality. Sometimes it's translated in reference to Gentiles. A dictionary definition would be a body of people most often grouped together by a common language, common geography. They live close together. And by a common culture, a way of life, a way of doing things. Okay? So let's go. I know we're, we're looking in, in the book of Genesis, and I have you in chapter 10. We're, we're not going to go all the way back and look at uh, everything we know from Adam and Eve and the descendants of Adam and Eve, and we, we have uh, names of individuals, uh, descendants of Adam, chapter number 5, and then, of course, the flood, and the account of the flood, Genesis 6 through 9. But notice in Genesis 10, now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. And then we see nations that come from Noah's sons. And I'm going to back out for just a moment, and I want to use this map, and it's not the best, but maybe it will help us a little bit in understanding where the nations went to. So we have, from the flood, from Noah and his family, from his sons, we have these descendants of Japheth, these descendants of Ham, and the descendants of Shem. Okay, and we see down here, we see the, the different shapes. Hopefully you're not geometrically challenged. But we have a rectangle here for where the descendants of Japheth went to. So we have these rectangles that show where Japheth's descendants went to. This oblong circular type shape shows the descendants of Ham, one of which was Canaan. Do we understand that there is not a curse of Ham? It's the curse of Canaan. I grew up hearing about the curse of Ham. Well, there is no really a curse on Ham. The curse is on Canaan, who is a descendant of Ham. Canaan would be in the prophecy regarding Canaan. There is already in this post-flood account, or in this account of the post-flood descendants of Noah, of his sons, there is this account, of course, where Noah sins, and we know that there was some involvement of Ham with the sins of, of Noah as he got drunk and exposed himself, and we don't know exactly all the details of what happened, but Ham was involved there in a wrong way, but the curse is on Canaan. It's a prophetic curse to the sins of Canaan. Canaan, the, the, the land of Canaan, by and large, would reject God, would reject divine revelation, would reject the truth. And God would obviously send Abraham, and this would be the land of Israel, the promised land. And then we have, I believe, I should remember what this is, 
foresighted, I believe it's the rhombus, are the descendants of Shem. I'm sure somebody can look it up on Google, but don't, don't do it right now. Don't look it up on Google right now. But these are, let me see, Jokpan, Elam, Asher, okay? Those are nations that would descend from the sons of Noah. Okay, now I'm going to go back again to our outline and come down as we see these nations, chapter 10 of the book of Genesis, and there's names in there that, in nations and people that we can't even um, pronounce the, all, the, all the nations, all the names correctly. But verse 32, Genesis 10, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. What's Genesis 11? The Tower of Babel. So man is disobedient. They were told to do what? To scatter, to go throughout the face of the earth. As man does, man tries to join in a confederacy and build the Tower of Babel and to rise up into the heavens and basically think that he can become godlike. He can be on the same level as God. He can reach some status of divinity. The same sin that is repackaged today in expressive individualism, in this narcissistic culture in which we live, we are gods unto ourselves. If we don't think that we are, you don't follow the news probably very much because the news, the headlines, are full of people who are narcissistic. They are so enamored with themselves that they commit all sorts of evil in sinful lifestyles and sinful activities and then expect everybody to celebrate it. And we now have corporations that give them millions of dollars for their celebration of their perversity. We have politicians who think of nothing but themselves and their power and their control and their money. It's the same sinful pattern we see throughout history. And as man tried to make his way to God and reach his state of deity and divinity and in his godlike, selfish efforts to be God or to be godlike, God does what? Obviously, as we know the story, he divides the people by language. He confuses their language. Babel. We get the word Babel even, B-A-B-B-L-E, from uh, this as far as I understand. He scattered them and they began to group by language. I will not get into all the DNA and everything that goes along with it, but certain traits as people married and intermarried, as they went into different parts of the world, different traits would develop. All that was built into the DNA. We are descendants, all of us back to Shem, Ham, or Japheth, and obviously back to Adam and Eve. And it's incredible. Dan's, I, I don't know about you, but I probably only understood about one-fourth of those words that Dan had on the screen today. But it was fascinating. It was absolutely fascinating, the complexity of our, our human life, of life, and uh, the DNA and the, and the amino acids and, and all that. So then the nations, we, we come to Genesis 11 and verse 28. And Haran died before his father, Terah, in the land of his nativity, in Ur of the Chaldees. And who is there among that nation? 
a pagan nation. Abram, Abraham. Verse 29, and Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren, and she had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Verse 2 of chapter 12, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Abram is called out of Ur the Chaldees, and God will make of him a distinct nation. And he will give them the land of Canaan, the promised land. We know that Abram lapsed in his faith at certain points. Though Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He was a saved man, but he picked up some of the sins of the land, of the culture. He picked up the sin of polygamy from his culture. It was culturally acceptable. It was still wrong. It had consequences, one of which was Hagar was given to him as his wife in a lapse of faith, and we know that the Arab nation most likely descended from Abram through Hagar and Ishmael. And he is a wild man, as Genesis 16 would describe him. And that's, from what we understand historically, the reason that Arab nations continue to be in conflict with Israel. And we see that, and then we see the effect of, the, of Muslim, of, of, of Islam, and, and the Muslim religion that is so prominent among the Arabs. And then we come to Genesis 25 and verse 23, and we see two nations. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two men are a people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Jacob is the younger, but he is the father, obviously Abraham, father of Israel, but Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. He would, his name would literally be changed to Israel, meaning prince. Esau would reject his birthright. He would sell it for a bowl of grits, of cream of wheat, of pottage. Um, I like grits. We make some good ones around here. And uh, Kelly made some grits the other day. Um, but I wouldn't be selling my birthright for grits, um, cream of wheat or whatever. It's something that was referred to as pottage, a bowl of pottage. He despised his birthright. He rejected God's blessing, God's desire for him if he had obeyed and had honored the Lord, he could have experienced God's blessing. But unfortunately, Esau, who was the father of Edom, having rejected, having despised his birthright, even though he and Jacob later would reconcile, Esau would remain in rebellion, never having submitted to God like Jacob did. Now, Jacob had to go through some hard knocks, wrestle with the angel, and we know that from him came the 12 tribes of Israel. 
So then we fast forward to the book of Isaiah. We see nations. We see, I wish we could trace this thread all the way throughout the Bible. We, we don't have the time to do so. So let's fast forward to the book of Isaiah. Now we are at, in history, we are at the period of time between 739 B.C. and 686 B.C. This is the time, the time frame around which Isaiah wrote. By the inspiration of God, the words that he wrote are the words of God, inspiration of God, but he wrote in that time period roughly 739, 740 B.C. to 686 B.C. And there was at this time, pardon me, I got a little ahead of myself, there was at this time a world power that would be dominating in this area of the world in particular, in what we might refer to as the known world, and that was Assyria. Now, we know that there are prophecies. Daniel himself would speak of the kingdom of Babylon, and then Medo-Persians, Greek, and then the Romans, and then eventually we talk about the revived Roman Empire and Antichrist and all that. But at the time that Isaiah is writing, the dominant empire or group of people, nation, is the Assyrians. And you can see, I know it's not the best, but you can see on this, this map there were other nations that were, or kingdoms that were out there. But for the most part, the Assyrians were the dominating kingdom. As man has done throughout history, and to this day, man has thirsted for power. Man has desired power over the world, over groups of people. We can talk about dictatorships. We can talk about kingdoms. We can talk about the Third Reich. We can talk about Putin, who's trying to restore Russia to the times of Peter the Great. And we can even talk about what's going on in our own country right now, where there is a thirst for power and trying to consolidate all the power and eliminate the Constitution and the different separations of powers and to put all the power into the hands of one man or one group of people. And, of course, the Antichrist and the false prophet, and we've talked about that in our series on prophecy. But at this time that Isaiah is writing, the Assyrian Empire is, as you can see, affecting the Middle East considerably and threatening Egypt, and over here is Babylon, which is beginning to rise in power. But Isaiah is writing, and he is going to deal with these nations in these chapters. So over here is Babylon. Oh, I just, what am I doing? I just, I just took that off the slide. But we just saw over there to the right of, to your, to your right, I guess it would be, would be Babylon. Babylon is rising in strength, Assyria is coming into Israel and is raiding Israel. The northern kingdom has split from the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom had zero good kings. Zero. From, I believe it was Jeroboam uh, through, I forget who the last king of the, the northern kingdom was. None of them were said to have done right in the eyes of the Lord. 
So God uses the Assyrians in 722 BC to conquer Israel. And the Assyrians were brutal people, cutting off the thumbs of rulers and leaders and kings and their big toes so they couldn't hold a sword and they couldn't walk properly. They were torturers. They were pagans. They were horrible types of people. And their capital city was Nineveh. We know who God sent to Nineveh. His name was Jonah. He wanted the Syrians to die. He didn't want them to be saved. He ran the other way. He was swallowed by a whale, a big fish, and puked up on the shore. And then he went and God saved the Ninevites. Revival broke out. And we're going to be in heaven one day with former pagans like ourselves, but Assyrians who got saved under the preaching of Jonah. But here's Isaiah preaching. And after the Assyrians begin to implode, every nation has grown weak first from the inside before it is ever taken over from the outside by a foreign nation. So a warning to America, as we are imploding because we have rejected God, because we have forgotten God, we have suppressed the truth, on and on we could go. We are growing weaker from the inside, but I don't know how all this is going to play out for the United States. My point isn't to get into politics or to get into the theories as to what's going to happen to the U.S. But as the Assyrians begin to lose their power, as they begin to have corruption from within, the Babylonian Empire rises into power. In 612 B.C., the Assyrians lose a great battle. I believe it was Nineveh. And the Babylonians become the dominant world power. Babylon steps onto the scene, and in Isaiah chapter 13, we see that God gives Isaiah prophetic revelation concerning the destiny of Babylon. We don't have time to read through all these chapters, but we see the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. This is Isaiah 13 in verse number 1. It goes all the way to chapter 14 in verse 23. There's also prophecies in Jeremiah 50 and 51 and Habakkuk 2, 6 through 17. And Babylon meets the judgment of God. And eventually, even in Revelation 18, the future Babylon, synonymous with Satan's kingdom, with the person of the Antichrist and the false prophet, the harlot, the false religion, and the harlot, and the personification of that in Babylon, Revelation 18, which is representative of the Antichrist and his one world religion, it meets its defeat, its final defeat in Revelation 18. So Babylon would be defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire, as prophesied by even Daniel, and then the future Babylon that is representative of the Antichrist and his one world religion and his, and his one world economy and his one world government and his false religion, obviously opposed to God, it meets its end at the Battle of Armageddon. And 
we read about that in Revelation chapter 18 and, and, and beyond, as we looked at in our series on prophecy. Well, then Isaiah deals with another nation. We know a lot about the Philistines. We hear about them a lot. And we see in Isaiah 14, verses 29 through 32, we see God's prophetic statement regarding the destiny of the Philistines. Rejoice not thou, this is Isaiah 14, verse 29, Rejoice not thou, whole Palestina, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken, for out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent, and the firstborn of the poor shall feed, and the needy shall lie down in safety, and I will kill thy roots with famine, and he shall slay thy remnant. Howl, O gate, cry, O city, thou whole Palestina, which is um, another name for the Philistines, art dissolved, for there shall come from the north a smoke, and none shall be alone in his appointed times. What shall one then answer the messengers of the nation that the Lord hath found in Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it? Philistia... The Philistine nation meets its destiny. God brings judgment on the Philistines. Also repeated in Amos and in Jeremiah, but there is a remnant that is saved out of even the Philistines. And then we come to Assyria. This is fascinating. We don't have time to read through Isaiah 14, verses 24 through 27, and chapter 30, verses 27 through 33. But let's look ahead to Chapter 19, Assyria, wicked, pagan. We know a group got saved in Nineveh, but notice in Isaiah 19, in verse 24. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. From that pagan nation and Egypt will come a people, a remnant, who will be saved. And there will be peace with Israel. And it won't be done with some hypocritical shaking of hands on some news feed and then the treaty broken at the next difficulty or whatever comes. No, this is at the millennial kingdom. Egypt is identified, Assyria is identified, and they are in unity with Israel. And they are the remnant from all three nations, saved in serving and living and occupying the millennial kingdom together in peace. I already have Philistia. I'm sorry, I went up there twice. And then we have Moab, Isaiah 15 and 16, two whole chapters that are given to Moab. There is also a remnant of the Moabites referenced in Amos 2 and Jeremiah 48 and Ezekiel 25. And then we see Isaiah 17, and we see in verses 1 through 3, we see that the Syrians are also judged. Chapter 17, verse 1, the burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aor are forsaken. They shall be for flocks which shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The fortress also shall cease from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. They shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. Is Damascus, is Syria not in the news today? 
It is. This, there is a historical destruction of the country, uh, the nation of Syria. There's a historical uh, destruction or judgment where they have been defeated in battle and in, there's historical record of that. But there is a future for Syria. And that is found there in Isaiah 17. There is a remnant. It says there in verse 3, they shall be as the glory of the children of Israel. Egypt, we just read in Isaiah 19. Has Egypt not been a major part of Israel's history? I, I wish we had time to go through. Uh, we could go back to Genesis 12 where Abram went down to Egypt. Uh, we could go to um, um, Isaac who was warned not to go to Egypt. We, of course, know that Esau took wives of the daughters of the Egyptians, and that was a grief to Isaac and to Rebekah. Actually, he took a, a, a later a wife of the daughters of, of Ishmael. Um, we could go to Exodus, obviously, to Joseph, uh, dwelling in Egypt and Israel, uh, coming out of Egypt where they were slaves. Solomon married a daughter of the Pharaoh of Egypt. Jeroboam hid from Solomon in Egypt. King Josiah died in a battle that Necho, the Pharaoh of Egypt, told Josiah the king to stay out of the battle. He had nothing to do with him, and Josiah went into the battle and died. In the mid-7th century B.C., Egypt came under the rule of Assyria. Uh, we, we could talk about Egypt in the history, the historical record, all the way to this day, where Egypt remains in the news. And we see the destiny of the nation of Egypt that in, involves Israel, as we just read a few moments ago, in that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Edom, no remnants. Tyre, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, there is a judgment and it comes with restoration. Also recorded in Amos 1. So we see that God has a plan and God has a destiny for each of these nations. Isaiah 28 and 29 speaks specifically of Israel, also referred to as Ephraim. Judah, also referred to um, in, in, in uh, Isaiah 28 and 29 as the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, Israel, Ephraim, Judah, and obviously the capital city, Jerusalem. And in the midst of of those statements regarding judgment, even on God's own people for their sin, what does he make a promise regarding? Isaiah 28 in verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. What does he give in verses 16 through 29? He gives a promise a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And it goes all the way back even to the promise to Abraham that God would make of him a great nation. And through Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. What is that a reference to? The Messiah. How is the world going to be blessed through the seed of Abraham? That seed is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Here is a reference in the midst of two chapters about judgment. There is the promise of the Messiah. 
And is that not like our God? In the midst of all of the judgment and the promises of the consequences for our sin, there is a mercy that is extended. There is an invitation at the end of Revelation for whosoever will to come. It is God does not take delight in the death of the wicked. God wants all men everywhere to repent. And we see this theme throughout Scripture as we look at the destiny of the nations. And that's where we're going to close tonight is God's desire for the nations to be reached with the gospel. Look at the promise in Matthew 24 and verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. We're, talk, we're talking about the 1040 window. And Michael Garamy will be coming here on Easter Sunday. And he'll be sharing some of his outreach in that 1040 window. There is, I've not had time to read the article yet. But in a a Christian news magazine that I subscribe to, there is a cover story on how Muslims are beginning to come to Christ in numbers that we have not seen ever. There's a disenchantment of the Muslim world with the liberal left in America that even though the Koran is false, even though Islam is a false religion, there is a a, a, a bracing, a rejection of the immorality of the liberal left here in America and the perversions of our culture that even the Muslim nations are beginning to distance themselves from. And there is a wide open opportunity, and I'm sure Michael Garamy will be able to share some of that if you've, had, if you've had time to read any of his prayer letters, if you get any of those. It's amazing some of the things that God is doing. In Turkey, that has been a closed country to the gospel, cannot stop the gospel that is coming in by the thousands and the millions after the earthquake. And there is humanitarian aid coming in right with it is coming the gospel. We don't know how long that window will be open. The USSR collapsed. And what happened? The gospel went in. Ukraine was one of the open countries to the gospel and Bible institutes and churches. And now, of course, we, we know the war is going on there. But the gospel reached that country. God desires for the nations to be reached with the gospel. We have the tremendous opportunity to support eight missionaries. We have one that in particular, Dr. Kim, who is translating the Bible and has produced a translation in the language, in the dialect of people who have to this day not had the written word of God in their hands. And we have, I know I probably have at least 10, 15, 20 Bibles in print in my home, much less what I have on my phone and on my Bible programs on my computer, plus what we can access on the Internet. And they are just now getting the Bible in their dialect, in printed form. Incredible. We referenced this passage last week. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. I should have capitalized D and N, because this is a reference to the Messiah. It's even in one of our Christmas hymns that we sing, The Desire of All the Nations. It's a title for Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 
Now we'll fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Probably a reference to his second coming in the millennial kingdom. Matthew 25, verse 32. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. This speaks to the individual who makes up the nations. Because we know that the nations have a power structure, a political structure, a ruler, a king, whatever the governing structure may be, but who makes up the nations? People. And what is the reference here to the dividing of the unsaved from the saved? And the saved will go into the millennial kingdom. The unsaved will be taken and held for the great white throne judgment that will take place after the millennial kingdom that we looked at in our series on prophecy. Revelation 5 and verse number 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. I don't want to get too carried away here on this little bit of a rabbit trail, but there are some non-gospel preaching churches who like to use this and say that God's desire is more for diversity of his church than the true gospel that will save from every people and tongue and tribe and nation. I hope I made sense when I said that. I hope that was understood. But there are some churches who put on their boards 30 nations, 45 nations, 65 nations, we are diverse. Okay, I'm not against diverse churches, believe me. Uh, I want there to be diversity. But is the point of this verse that we are to have as our priority diversity? Or is the point of this verse that God saves from every background, from every nation, from every people group? The point is the gospel saves no matter what, you're, we are the ones who put way too much emphasis on, on race. I wish I could even talk about some of the, the things that Ken Ham talks about in, in, in that, 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 that lecture, that, that, that book, One Blood, One Race. We're one race. There's one race. There's hundreds of people groups who are connected by geography, by culture, by language. But we are one race, the DNA proves that we are one race, one blood. We as human beings have made a big deal about race, color of skin. But God is saving from every background, from every culture, and calling a people unto himself. And then we close tonight with the Great Commission. This is the heart of our Savior. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teach all nations. Make disciples of all nations. We in America are a melting pot. I've not done, is it 23 in me? Or 26 in me? 23, I forget the number. The, the, the DNA, the, I think it's 23 in me. Um, the DNA where you go out and you find your your ancestry. I've not, done, I've not done one of those. I don't know if any of you have. Uh, there are sort of some surprises from what I'm hearing. Um, I understand that there was a certain 
uh, person who was a political activist for a uh, liberal cause, and she was disappointed to find out about her ancestry. But again, we find out, we, we, we put way too much emphasis on the color of our skin, on the, what is it, the melanin in our, in our skin. Way too much emphasis on that. We're one race, but here we see that the gospel is to go forth to all nations, to every people group, everywhere. And that is the responsibility that we have. And so there is a destiny for the nations, and it's made up of people, individuals, with a personal responsibility before God for accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ. But it's also a reminder as Americans who are really an amalgamation of a lot of different nations. I don't know what my ancestry is. I've been told it's German. I don't know. But maybe one day I'll do a, a chromosome test or, or DNA test or whatever. Maybe I'll do that. But whatever the results are, the point is that God wants all men everywhere to be saved. He wants all men everywhere to repent and to be saved. And God has a desire for the nations to come to him. And there is a destiny for the nations. For those that reject Christ, that reject the truth, that reject the word of God, there is the consequence, the judgment. But for those who trust Christ as their Savior, who turn to him in saving faith, there is the blessing of being ushered into God's kingdom and being a part of that great choir that sings his praise, a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood and of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have.